everybody. Welcome to Redemption Church. If it's your first time, we're glad you're here. Looks like we got a lot of people out this week traveling. I know several. And uh, it's pretty nasty outside. I walked out before dark to come to church, and it was hot. And I started sweating on the way to the car. It was crazy. So everybody's probably, maybe everybody's staying in the air conditioning this morning. I don't know. Anyways, welcome to Redemption Church. We're glad that you're here. Um, my name is Ben. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastor's elders here. And this morning, I'm going to Uh, Take us and lead us into, as we continue in our uh, series, Set Apart, a study of 1 Peter. We're just going to continue in that in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. But before we jump in, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Our Father, we uh, come before you this morning thankful, uh, praising you. We've come to worship. We've gathered together to worship and to Uh, Lift high the name of Christ, the name of Jesus. We thank you that you've made this day, that it's a good day. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it, believing that it's another day where you'll show us more about who you are, that you'll make yourself more known to us, that the good news will flood our souls more, that our hearts will be reached more with the gospel. So, Father, we we ask that your Holy Spirit be at work even this morning uh, as we worship together through singing and through uh, the hearing of your word um, and through communion and through all these things that we do, that it would be a proclamation uh, to us that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you have great love for us, love that we can't even comprehend. Open up our, uh, the eyes of our hearts to know that love. Lord, say what you would have say, uh, said to each one of us. Have our ears hear what you'd have each one of us hear and change us and make us more like you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, several years ago, I used to go, we used to go to Borders Bookstore a lot. Uh, that's no longer a thing here. Uh, but, but back in the day, we'd go to Borders, we'd drink our coffee. We felt like we were uh, like on Friends or something. And then we'd uh, you know, shop around for the books. Anyways, I had my eye on the set of uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books. There's nothing special, just like this paperback set of the Narnia books. And I wanted to have my own set, my own copy. I, I didn't have them. And I wanted to read them. So I'd had my eye on them for a little while. And one night, Claire and I were hanging out with some friends. Uh, we're sitting around in the living room. And I don't know, we we're talking about the series or something. And I, I mentioned that I was, I was ready to go buy those books, that I was going to be buying them pretty soon. And Claire was like, um, you know, we don't really have a lot of money right now, so you're probably going to wait on that. And uh, she knew because she's always been the nerd who's kept up with our budget spreadsheet, right? I'm thankful for that. I wasn't thankful for it at the time, though because I didn't really like that. I didn't like being told what to do. And so I said something like this. Oh, yeah, well, if I want it, I'll go get it. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, I, if I want it, I'm going to go get it. I mean, I have a job. I make money. I go get the books. Anyways, it, it escalated pretty quickly there with our friends, and I got up and I went to the bookstore and bought these books. <laughs> just to be like, just to stick it to Claire, right? Man, that's messed up. They're on my bookshelf upstairs in my office, and every time I see them, I'm like, and I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed by how I got those books. It was so petty, right? Our passage today uh, in, in 1 Peter dives into an exhortation from Peter to be subject to authority. Now, I know it can happen as soon as we're told to submit to authority. If you're anything like me, we experience like a little bit of a gut check. As a matter of fact, the fact that I just mix authority and then like a deal with like me submitting to my wife might be a gut check uh, for us this morning. But 
That's not my problem. Reggie's dealing with that next week, so we'll move on. Uh, but sometimes when we hear about submitting to authority, when we're told that we need to be submitting to authority, there's a little bit of a gut check. I mean, do you experience that kind of resistance as well? Is it just me? Am I the only rebel? Uh, but we like, you know, what we like to do, this is what I like to do. It's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we should submit to authority. I think that's, I mean, that's obviously in Scripture. But also, like, God calls us sometimes to rebel, right, or to dissent uh, or whatever. And so we come up with all the, the, the examples and all the nuances of what, when this is applicable and when it's not. But honestly, in the Scripture that we're in today, it doesn't go there. Right? Peter doesn't go into all that. It's just a call, plain and simple, to submit to human institutions. And the fact that Peter doesn't go into all the nuances, nuances of it makes it a pretty hard pill to swallow. But I think for us this morning, we need to swallow that pill because it's really good for us. See, there's a greater exhortation in these verses than just that of submitting to the, the authority of human institutions. And that greater exhortation is to submit to Jesus as Lord. Right? We say that all the time around here, that we want to be a people who are increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. And the greater exhortation for us today in Peter is to submit to Jesus as Lord, believing that his ways are higher and greater than ours and that he's in control. The greater exhortation is to trust God over ourselves and over our own ways, over our own understanding. The cause to trust him and to trust him this way even into suffering and even unto death. That's a part of what's happening in the scripture, and it's a very hard thing to do, to trust God that way. This is what I want us to see. The one thing that we need to take away this morning is if we've come to trust that Jesus is truly good and sovereign, we can lay down our arms and be subject to the authorities that be. If we've come to trust that Jesus is truly good and sovereign, we can lay down our arms and be subject to the authorities that be. We're going to read the scripture. Um, I'm actually going to back up just a couple verses even into last week's uh, passage, and we're going to read uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through 25. Verses 11 through 25. And it says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what, cre what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We committed no, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We've talked a good bit about uh, Peter's original audience as we've gone through this series. Uh, Christians who were living among Gentiles in modern day uh, Turkey and who were under the rule of the Roman Empire. So, so far, we've been able to track pretty good with these uh, elect exiles, with these sojourners, as Peter calls them. And at, and at times, I think we've been able to track with them and relate to them pretty well, right? But as we enter into this passage, and as we kind of enter in this portion of the letter, we're going to begin to see some things that are very different between the culture that Peter was writing to and the culture of today. And it's important that we understand those differences at least a little bit. So one thing that we need to to notice is made evident in these verses is that Peter is writing to a very diverse community of people. Now, that in itself is not that different. We live in a pretty diverse community as well, but the diversity is a little bit different. See, the people he's writing to are people made up of some who are wealthy, as we see like even in chapter 3 there, that they're able to buy jewelry to adorn themselves, that they might even be able to be benefactors. But there are also people who are slaves, people who are servants, people in the servant class. There are wealthy and there are slaves. And while slavery is something that has been and was a reality even in our own country uh, at one time, and we still have residual effects from that, that system of slave and master, that relationship of slave and master just isn't part of our system any longer. It's no longer something that we live amongst exactly in the same way. There's diversity not just in place. It's not just like where they live. It's not just the different types of people around them, but amongst those who the letter is actually addressed to, right? It's not just in the city. There's a diversity. The people that the letter is addressed to are very diverse, wealthy, men, women, slave, so on. And it's a beautiful thing that there's great diversity like this. And, that, and as, they've been, as we've been talking about, they've been made God's people, right? And last week we talked about how the church proclaims the excellency of at, how the church proclaims the excellencies of Christ to each other and how we're reconciled is actually how Christ is uh, uh, proclaimed best to the culture that we live in. So it's a beautiful thing that they've been made God's people, but there's a diversity there that's a little bit different than ours. And another thing that we need to observe in the way of differences between us and the original audience is that they're under a different form of government, right? Their form of government is very different than ours. Uh, they're under the supreme rule of the emperor, and they're under the rule of the governor who's sent by the emperor to keep some sort of moral law. Remember, these people didn't elect these officials. They have no say in who's going to be their governor. This is somebody sent by the emperor. He's not there for the interest of the people. He's there for the interest of the emperor. And then there's a third thing that we should note that's hinted at in verse 12, which we just read uh, and we looked at last week. And that's why we in America are, you know, we have one nation under God stamped on some of our money and things like that, uh, and, and it's in our Pledge of Allegiance. At the time of this letter, Christians are looked at as evildoers. Like, God's not recognized as legitimate, and Christianity is criminal. It's against the law. It's illegal. 
Perhaps you've already heard, you've heard the story before of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, uh, which is modern-day Izmir, Turkey, right? So this letter that Peter wrote actually would have gone to that area. And in about 156 AD, he had a dream that his pillow was on fire. And the story goes that when he had that dream, he knew what was to come. And then three days later, Polycarp, Polycarp stood in an arena in chains facing an angry crowd who hated the Christian leader. He stood before the Roman proconsul, which is the governor sent by the emperor, and he admitted and he confessed that he was, in fact, the bishop of Smyrna, which is a confession and an admission to being a Christian, which is a confession of crime, right? Because it's against the law. It's illegal. And in some, to many, it was the equivalent of treason, and it was punishable by death. Now, the governor tried to reason with Polycarp, who's very old at this point, and he says, you're an old man. Just take an oath to the emperor and renounce your fellow, fellow traitors. And because Christians only worship one god, instead of the many gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, the non-Christians then would call Christians atheists. Right? And so he continued. The governor says, just say, away with the atheist, and you'll be spared. Curse Christ, and I'll release him. What was Polycarp's response? He said this. He said, I've been a servant for 86 years, and he's done me no wrong. How shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then there was threats of animals coming out into the arena to tear him apart, and Polycarp responded. He said, call for them. Call for them. To change one's mind from evil to righteousness is a good thing, but to go from better to worse is something we cannot do. And on top of that, then he threatened with fire to, be, to burn him. And he said, you threaten me with fire that burns for a little while, and then it's put out. But you know nothing of the eternal fire, the eternal punishment that awaits the ungodly at the coming of judgment. Why do you hesitate? Come on and do what you will. The story goes that the crowd lit a fire to burn Polycarp, and then uh, it, didn't, it didn't burn him, it didn't consume him. And so a soldier killed him with a dagger, and the blood was so much that it actually extinguished the fire that surrounded him. And in the end, Polycarp was dead. And so the question is, how do you trust God enough to embrace and endure that kind of violence and that kind of suffering unless you've had an experiential taste of the good news of Jesus Christ? Like, how do you trust God that much? How do you follow Christ that far unless you've actually experienced the good news to be real and to like experiential change in your life that's better than everything else. It's, it cannot be based on just consenting that, yes, Jesus must have lived and he did the thing. He died on the cross and he rose again. I believe that happened. It's more than that. It's a belief that that changed everything for you from here and into eternity. How do you trust God enough to embrace and endure that kind of suffering Unless you've come to trust that Jesus is truly good and sovereign, how can you lay down your arms and be subject to the authorities that be? How can you embrace that kind of suffering and endure that kind of violence? This is Peter who wrote this, right? Peter who had drawn his sword when Jesus was taken from the garden and was told to put it away. And he says, he writes here, to fight this kind of violence by keeping your conduct honorable, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. 
Peter probably wrote this letter in the early 60s AD, which is the same decade when Polycarp was born. And, uh, and then, of course, Polycarp was killed in uh, AD 156. And it wasn't until Constantine in like AD 312 that the persecution of Christians ended. Christianity was legalized and then experienced enormous growth. So that's like 250 years. It's a long time. Am I doing my math right? I'm doing it wrong. It's like 150 years. But at the time of Peter's letter, almost 150 years prior to Constantine, Christians could be considered evildoers and atheists. And it's into this context that Peter writes this exhortation to these specific followers of Christ. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles and be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And listen, the fruit of following Peter's exhortation would not be realized for at least another 150 plus years. So today we're going to look at two of these institutions briefly that Peter says to be subject to, that of the governing authority and that of servants and bond servants or basically slaves. And then next week we're going to look at Uh, the institution of husband and wife, the institution of marriage, and we'll let Reggie uh, handle whatever I messed up earlier. But let's look at uh, verses 13 through 17. I didn't mess it up, by the way. Anyways, uh, it's just difficult. Let's look at verses 13 through 17. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not, doing, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Like I said, this governing authority is not the same as ours today, right? They weren't elected by the people They didn't represent the people. They represented the emperor. And Christianity was against the law. It's a much different environment than we are in. Even more, those who are Christians in this area are likely Gentiles who have converted to Christianity, who've broken from their traditional way of life, who've uh, broken away from their traditional, like, religious observances and the civic cults of the day. In one of my reference books, uh, The New Testament in Antiquity, in, in Antiquity, it's noted that, In a society that lauded duty and adherence to tradition, their conversion was a serious social breach indeed. Their contemporaries were not adverse to call them to account for their new religious allegiance since religion was a public affair. The gods, after all, served as patrons and protectors of the communities. So noncompliance by Christians was a social threat. So Peter's addressing a people who are living in the middle of some kind of real tension and some real temptations, right? They're living, it's amongst the people who find, when when you're living amongst the people who find your religion to be a social threat, to be a threat to the entire community, it's necessary to prove that your religion is a social blessing. And in a culture that did not honor anybody who wasn't seen as particularly valuable, it was necessary to be found useful and it was countercultural to obey this command to honor everyone. It may, 
to the people that Peter's writing to, it may have seemed like a choice that had to be made, right? Between honoring those outside the brotherhood or continuing to love the brotherhood. There was a tension and a temptation to choose one over the other, but Peter says to walk the line and do both. Bless the community, be useful, pay your taxes, be subject to these authorities. And in a culture where it may have seemed that they had to decide whether to fear and revere God or fear and revere and honor the emperor, Peter also says, no, you don't have to bow to the gods in order to honor the emperor. There's no promise of safety in this, but there's something greater than safety. And he he gets to it at the end of this passage, and he points them to Christ, saying, by his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. That's a forever healing. That is real life into eternity. By the assurances given by the person and work of Christ, we can answer the call then by following the example in verse 23. The the example of Christ in verse 23. This is how you walk the line. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter says in verse 15, This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. And back in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, if we've come to trust that Jesus is truly good and sovereign, we can lay down our arms and be subject to the authorities that be. Knowing that when we make ourselves subject to them, we are ultimately submitting to God, trusting that he's writing a greater story. And we can follow Christ and his example even into death, glorifying God by our ultimate satisfaction in him. Let's move on to uh, what Peter has to say specifically to the servants in verse 18 through 21. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to do not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when, you're sin, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In this culture, in their culture, the majority of, or at least close to the majority of the population was very likely a servant class. The particular servants probably addressed here just because of the, the more urban environment that they was delivered to uh, are likely household servants, which was very common. Now, these household servants may have had, like, the ability to eventually buy their freedom, maybe be able to save up some money somehow and buy their freedom. Or as they got older, some of their masters would free them, but it was really so that they wouldn't have to take care of them uh, in their old age. But they were seen as property, not as people. And they were often treated unjustly. They were beaten, and they were sexually abused. They had no rights, and they had no social value. I realized, too, that I mean, that has to 
make us think of even the slavery that existed in our own country, and that leads to questions of slavery and what God thinks of it and all that. And I realize that it could be troublesome uh, for us that Peter doesn't really uh, seem to make a case to free people from slavery here. But in order to see all these people uh, freed from slavery, it would mean overthrowing the whole Roman power structure, and that's just like not even on the table at the moment. And while Peter maybe would advocate that way in another context, in another letter to another person, but right, you know, we, I mean, we see that he clearly understands the injustices and the sorrows that they have to endure. It's just not what Peter's doing here. It's just not the business that he's going about. Instead, what Peter's doing is pastoring these people, right? He's pastoring a people who are very unlikely to see a change to the systematic injustices of their day, who are very unlikely to see things change, who are very unlikely to really be free and for, for the whole system to change. And he's pastoring them to help them know their purpose and how they fit into the larger narrative of redemption and reconciliation and restoration. So Peter instructs them in a different way. He says, basically, for this you were called to endure suffering even when you do good, just as Christ did. People who weren't even thought of as people in society, people who were not valued, who had no rights, who had no value to anybody, they weren't thought of as human. They had no dignity, right? To those people with no real purpose, Peter equates with going about the business that Jesus, want, want, that Jesus went about. They have a great purpose. Their plight looks like the, that, that of Christ, right? And so his plea is like, think of Jesus. Think of the good uh, that you have received because of what he suffered on the tree. And then by his wounds you are healed. By his wounds you are healed. Again, that's forever healing, right? That's life worth living for into eternity. And it's a reference back to Isaiah 53, and it's not on accident. I don't want us to think that the reference back to Isaiah 3 is just kind of a nice filler. It's not. It's purposeful. It's a reminder of a greater redemptive story, right? It's a reminder that this is what Israel was called to. And then Jesus became the greater, the true and better Israel. And it's a reminder that Jesus did this for you. And he did it also for the lost sheep who are currently persecuting you. And so your purpose and your call looks like that of Christ, which is to lay down and endure with grace so that they might know God. If you've come to trust that Jesus is truly good and sovereign, then you can lay down your arms and be subject to the authorities that be. When you endure suffering, you endure because you believe that God is writing a better story. And you can see your suffering turned into glory for his name, knowing that your mourning and your suffering will be turned to joy, will be turned to dancing into eternity. Listen, because Christians heeded the call of Peter and other authors and preachers, because Christians heeded the call of Peter and others and looked to Christ while being subject to every human institution, Eventually, after many years, Christianity brought about its first major cultural revolution. 
right? And it did this by challenging the popular idea of what constituted a human to be valuable. They challenged it not by way of rebellion, but by way of a long obedience in the same direction, by being subject to authority and keeping their conduct honorable. See, Roman and other pagan cultures placed little value on human life. Slavery was rampant and acceptable. Deplorable acts of violence and sexual assault uh, toward them were socially acceptable. It was fine. They're your property. You can do what you want. Women were of little value, mainly used for sexual pleasure, for birthing and the weaning of sons. Sons. Because babies were aborted or more often they were killed by exposure if they were considered an inconvenience or unprofitable for the state. Only the rich were considered to be of any real value in that society, and even among the rich, they didn't value the lives of each other unless they could use each other for something. It was only valuable if you could be used. In that setting, Christianity stood up against these ideals by way of being subject and being a blessing believing that every human was created in the image of God and therefore had intrinsic value. And while they, while they endured tremendous persecution, like that of Peter himself, like that of Polycarp and many others, Christians rescued babies thrown out by others and left to die. Christians refused to abuse or kill any person in retaliation and treated the very least in the culture with dignity by doing good. Christian servants endured suffering at the hands of unjust masters. Those who enjoyed some privilege leveraged it for the good of those who did not, and those who didn't have any privilege endured suffering with grace. They protected the vulnerable and the weak. They demonstrated that all were valuable in, cult in, the, in a culture that only utilized others as disposable resources. Slowly, the Christian's persistent began to change the perspective of popular culture to see each person as valuable. The authorities saw the good that Christians had done for society, how their religion had proven to be a blessing and not a threat, and they took their lead eventually. And honestly, the idea that our world has today, and specifically our country, that every person is created equal, that every person has dignity, that idea that even the church now gets accused of neglecting and maybe often does neglect. Those ideas actually come from a cultural revolution that came about because of these very exiles and sojourners that Peter's writing to and those who lived after them. Those who were subject to authority and who endured suffering unjustly. Where they had privileged status, they used it for the good of all. And where they had no privilege, they submitted, endured, and endured in love, trusting the ultimate authority of Christ who had done the same on their behalf. Now we're going to wrap up, but things are different for us today at Redemption Church. But there's a lot of good takeaways for us too, and we're going to keep diving into this as we go forward through the next few weeks. Uh, so I'm just going to trust that in the next couple of weeks we will have an opportunity to kind of pick up on a few implications that we could draw out today because I want to focus on the one question that I think is the most important and probably the first thing for us to consider as we consider submitting to authority, or subjecting ourselves to this authority. We, too, are called to make God known in our culture. 
by being subject to human institutions. I believe that leads us to what seems like some absolutely like radical behavior in our culture. Not behavior of rebellion as much as behavior that would have us lay down our arms, put our swords away, being willing to lay down our very life and endure suffering with grace. How do you trust God enough to embrace and endure that kind of suffering unless you have an experiential taste of the good news? That's the question that we have to have this morning, that we have to answer this morning is how do you trust God enough to embrace and endure that kind of suffering unless you've had an experiential taste of the good news? I can't say exactly what it felt like in the gut of the hearer or the listener to which Peter was writing. It was likely difficult to some degree. I imagine even though culturally they probably responded to the call to uh, submit to authority a little bit differently than many of us will. But I do know what it makes me feel like, right? I know what it, what it makes me feel like when uh, somebody tells me what to do. I know what it probably makes a lot of us feel like. I mean, we live in a country, we live in the land of we the people, right? And we don't like to be told that we are subject to anybody. I mean, it's just part of our culture. We tend to buck back at an authority system or an authority structure or an authority figure. And I think we need the last bit of this passage the most this morning. We need to be reminded of whose we are. We need to be reminded of who Jesus really is. Can he be trusted even when things look dismal? Can Jesus the king be trusted to reign over those who have authority in this world? Nationally, locally, your authorities at work, your authorities elsewhere. Let's just take a look at verse 21 through 25. It says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. See, if you've come to trust that Jesus is truly good and sovereign, you can lay down your arms and be subject to the authorities that be because he who has gone out for your salvation, who's gone out for our, re- our salvation and our reconciliation and the reconciliation of all things, He who did battle on the cross and won, he did it by way of laying down his arms and being subject to the authorities that be. That's how Christ did it. Trusting that his father had the greater authority. And he was proven to have the greater authority. He was proven sovereign. He was proven good. He was proven trustworthy and faithful. And he can be trusted enough so that we too are equipped and able to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, and to honor the emperor. To close, just to close, I just would encourage you this, this, through the week, I put some questions in the bulletin. 
uh, you can use that to kind of start you off, but I, I would really encourage you to just take some time, maybe with those questions in, the, in, in, in this passage, to just begin to uncover the places where your heart objects. Through reading of the word, through prayer, ask that God, ask that Christ, ask that the Holy Spirit would begin to uncover the places where your heart objects, where you would balk at the way of Christ, where, it would, where it's difficult for you to trust. Ask him to reveal that to you and then spend some time in the word and prayer and discover that Christ is sufficient. Christ is good. Christ is totally satisfying. And he's totally worthy of our obedience. He's trustworthy. You can trust him for your good, for your joy, for your satisfaction, and to glorify his name above all else. We're going to enter into a time of response. And in this time, which we do each week, um, there'll be a time where you can pray and reflect. Uh, we we'll, should have some people in the back that can even pray with you. If you'd like, you're welcome to go and grab them and pray. Grab someone else and pray. Uh, it's a time when the band will come and they'll lead us through uh, some, more, um, some more worship uh, and some song together. And we'll, we'll enter into a time of prayer together as well. Uh, it's also a time where we give our tithes and offerings as we worship God and trust him and submit to him and worship him in that way. And then lastly, every week we take communion. Um, and so we come down this aisle, go either way, and you can take the, the, the bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice. And we remember the body and the blood of Christ. We remember his example. Remember that he's trustworthy, that he's good, that he's proven once and for all by going to the cross and defeating death and bringing us to life with him. That he's king and he has supreme authority and he's over all things and he's good and it's his story and you have value and you have worth through him and you have purpose through him. And he's calling you to that. And that's good news for us. Uh, so as we, as we do that, we just remember those things. We will pro- proclaim them to each other. Um, we remember Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he's your Savior. And so we invite you to come and do that, whether you're a member of this church or not. If you're a Christian, we invite you to do that. If you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Christ, if you uh, are, aren't a follower of Christ, then we ask you not to come, but not because we don't love you and not because we want to make you feel like an outcast, but because when we do this, we're making a proper proclamation that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And so if you can't say that, we just don't want you to say it. Instead, we'd rather you hear what we're doing in our action. Hear the proclamation we're making through our action. Jesus Christ gave himself for you. And he gave himself for all. And so you can trust him, and you can lay down your arms, and you can follow him into submission and, uh, to all the authorities, but, but, but ultimately by submitting to him. And there's joy there, and there's life eternally. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for uh, just a time to gather with believers and uh, to worship you. We thank you for a time to gather as your body and to like raise up the name of Christ and, and to hear the gospel. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would, um, would really be at work in our hearts so that we would have a better understanding even today of the good news of Jesus Christ. That we would have a better understanding of just how good news, just how good that news is for us. That he came, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he ascended, that he's king and that he sent his Holy Spirit to lead us. It's 
good news because we were dead and now we're alive. And nothing in this world is enough. Nothing in this world can satisfy the way Jesus satisfied. Nothing here can bring life. Everything here just brings death. And just draw us to you, just draw us to worship you, and draw us to proclaim the gospel to one another and to those who aren't among us, to those who don't know you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.